0: Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes has a particular premise. And tonight as we come to the last three chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's helpful for me to remind you of the premise that we saw in the first nine chapters of the book. The premise of the book of Ecclesiastes, which makes it really kind of different than any other book of the Bible, is that it discusses this question from a fairly philosophical standpoint. The question is simply this. What meaning does this life have if this life is all there is? Now, there are many people who believe that this life is all there is, that there's nothing beyond what we live in, what we see, what we breathe in, what we experience in this life. And if that were true, that this life is all there is, then it would be fair to ask, what meaning does life have? Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he uses, and he, I mean Solomon, who calls himself the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes, he uses a phrase repeatedly. As a matter of fact, he uses it 27 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the phrase is under the sun. And in the mind of uh, Solomon, that phrase under the sun considers life in this world, In other words, under the sun has the sense of this life in the here and now and not in consideration of eternity. Do you get the idea there? Now, up to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's given us some wisdom, he's given us some foolishness, but all of it has come from this under the sun perspective now in chapter 10 solomon inches forward more and more towards true wisdom that is living life in light of eternity there is a sense in which in the previous nine chapters of the book of ecclesiastes we have been building up to this point that we're going to just make a bare step in in chapter 10 but by the very end of the book we're going to be immersed in true wisdom from an eternal perspective so now let's take a look ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 1 Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. You you see, Solomon here follows a familiar form in stating Proverbs. You understand that King Solomon was the author of the book of Proverbs. So here he's incorporating some of that thinking, some of that wisdom right here in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And what's he have in mind? He has in mind the idea that a dead fly spoils the fine ointment because it just kind of rots in there and makes the whole thing trying to smell. And so he says, That is like how, look at there in verse 1 so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. Even as a small dead fly, which is quite little in proportion to the whole. I mean, the fly is so small and the ointment jar is so big, yet that one small fly can spoil the whole ointment so a little bit of folly can spoil the reputation of someone who is regarded as wise and honorable. Friends, isn't it true? You can spend your whole life building up a reputation and one foolish act can take it away. One. It's almost unfair, isn't it? But it's true in the world that we live in. Now I want you to understand something. That Solomon the preacher, now in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's beginning to direct his arguments toward the intended direction. If we want to use the metaphor of a ship, it's like he's operating this way. He has sailed in many different directions to show us the meaninglessness of life. He's been sailing all over the place. But now, beginning just in a little way in chapter 10, he's starting now to tack towards land and he's putting the boat in the right direction you see Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 1 reminds us of a very important principle our actions have consequences do they not I mean if you say that one act of foolishness can destroy the reputation you've spent your whole life trying to build aren't we trying to say that actions have consequences that lays the groundwork for what he's going to discuss later on now verse 2 A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. Now look at it there in verse 2. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. The right hand was regarded as the hand of strength and skill, because most people are right-handed. The left hand was not regarded that way. Therefore... A wise man's heart is a strength and a help to him, just like your right hand is. But this is not true of the fool whose heart is at the left of him. You see, right and left were sort of symbols of strong and good on the one hand and weak and bad on the other hand. Matter of fact, did you know that the Latin word sinister means left? It kind of comes from this idea that the left side was not the good side. And what does he do? What's the result of it? Look at it there in verse 3. He shows everyone that he's a fool. The foolish man or woman has a way of making their folly evident. As Jesus would later say, he said this in Luke chapter 7, verse 25. He said, wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom and folly become obvious. Going on now, verse, seven, verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. There's that phrase, under the sun. An error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. Notice here, verse 4 he says, If the spirit of the ruler rises against you... The idea of this seems to be something like this. Even in a difficult situation, don't leave your post. Be faithful to your position and you will find that conciliation pacifies great offenses. But now in verses 6 and 7, he says, folly is set in dignity. And then verse 7, I have seen servants on horses. The preacher wanted to remind us of something. In this life, not everything is fair. Have you seen that? Have you seen some really foolish, wicked people rewarded? I have. Have you seen people who should be lowly and humble, yet somehow exalted to a high place? I've seen that as well. Friends, it's a terrible thing, but it shows us in this life, not everything is fair. He's setting us up for his conclusion to live life in light of eternity. Now verse eight. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. Again, he's continuing in his way of stating Proverbs, but he's saying in verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. Solomon listed several examples of those who did wrong or foolish things, and then they suffered as a result of it. The guy who digs a pit and then falls into it. The the guy who's quarrying stone, but then he's hurt by it. The guy who wants to split wood, but maybe the axe comes back up and hits him in the head or something like that. Again, the fool will continue on and use a dull axe, as he mentions in verse 10, instead of being wise and sharpening the edge. You see, listen, this is the point. The fool doesn't consider the future. The fool just says, axe, wood, chop. The wise man says, axe, sharper, work, easier, and safer. I don't know why I'm talking like a caveman, but you get the idea. (laughs) You get the idea here, right? The, The wise man says, let me think about the future. I want you to understand, Solomon is setting us up for the end. Because in the end, he's going to ask us, I don't mean to blow the, I, I'm just going to tell you it now. We'll get to it, but let me just get, help you understand it in the here and now. That a wise life lives life in light of eternity. Not just in the here and now, no. But when we live life in the light of eternity, we're thinking about the future. Just like a man who sharpens the axe instead of just beating with a dull axe upon the wood. Verse 11. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No one knows what he is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? Now notice, again, he's talking about the consequences of foolishness. Again, verse 11, a serpent may bite when it's not charmed. The babbler is no different. The, as dangerous as a biting serpent is the one who talks or who babbles like a fool. In contrast, the words of a wise man are gracious. Now, verse 14, a fool also multiplies words. Who can tell him what will be after him? Now, listen, if we've been following the thought all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, when we come to that verse, we say, who can tell him what will be after him? Solomon, what do you mean what will be after him? All through the first nine chapters, you told us to just think of life as being under the sun. You wanted us to think as if this life is all there is, and now you're telling me to consider that there may be something after me? What are you talking about, Solomon? He's gonna keep going on now. Verse 15, the labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. The fool has no desire to work. And when they do, they quickly get tired. They can't see, this is what the fool can't see, that it is wise to work now to prepare for the future. Can I just give kind of a silly illustration? Here you are at the end of the pay period and uh, you go to get your paycheck from the boss and you notice it's zero. Well, gee, boss, how come my paycheck's zero? Well, um, you didn't work any hours this week. Uh, well, um, you know, gee, I was really counting on this money. I need to pay the rent and some bills. and I need to eat some food. And then the boss says, well, you know, if you would have worked and put in some hours this week, then I would have some money in the paycheck to give you. Well, but, but I want my paycheck. Where is it? You see, the fool is so foolish, he doesn't think, I need to work now so that I can get paid on payday. He only lives for the moment and doesn't think about the future. Again, Solomon is telling us how to begin to have a mentality that prepares for eternity. I love what he says here in verse 15. They do not even know how to go into the city. The, the preacher continues to subtly back away from his previous under-the-sun premise. The fool has no sense of direction, no goal. He's so thick-headed, he doesn't even know how to go to the city. His life is, full of, is lacking meaning and direction. Verse 16 Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness because of laziness of the building decays and through idleness of hands the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For the bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Now, notice this. He's talking here in these verses about how foolishness corrupts a nation. So he says in verse 16 Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. Now Solomon felt that he himself was a child when he came to the throne of Israel, but he was a child who relied on the Lord. And then in verse 16, he says Woe to you, O land. And then verse 17 Blessed are you, O land. The preacher understood that a land was blessed by good and faithful leaders and a land was cursed by corrupt and foolish leaders. Let me just say that again. A land is blessed by wise and faithful leaders. A land is cursed by foolish and unfaithful leaders. It's the same today as it was then, is it not? Now, Solomon here in verse 19 speaks in the voice of this wicked, unwise king. And so he says, A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes merry. Money answers everything. These are the words of a foolish king speaking. And along this line, he counseled his reader. Verse 20, Don't curse the king lest you be found out. Now I want you to take a look at something there in the last verse, verse 19 of chapter 10. The thought is very suggestive. He says simply, for a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter if you curse the king. You see, the thought is very suggestive. A king may hear of my wrongdoing and I would suffer for it even though I was not aware that he heard what I said. Okay, let me repeat that. A king may hear what I said and learn of it somehow, and I may suffer for it even though I was not aware that he was listening. Friends, don't you realize that it's the same with God? The same is true of my wrongdoing before God my wrongdoing before God is wrong and I may suffer for it even though I am unaware that God sees. You understand that, don't you? That that it's not only when we're aware that God sees us that we are guilty before him. We're guilty before him every time we sin. And that's why we so desperately need to have our sin covered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse five now, excuse me. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil would be on the earth. What does he say there in verse 1? Well, cast your bread upon the waters. This probably refers to a shipping venture that required a lot of patience for the return of the investment. The idea is that a wise and good man works for a return that is not immediately seen. In other words, if you will only work for what you can immediately gain, you're a fool. The best and most important returns, both in business, but it's also true spiritually, are returns on investment where you invest for a long time wisely and then you receive. And so he says in verse 2, give a serving to seven and then also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. You see, he counseled generosity and did so in light of the future that it must be prepared for. Again, he's beginning to direct us more and more towards true wisdom. The ship is making its way back towards land. Verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the trees falls, there it shall lie. He observes the wind will never sow and he who regards the clouds will not weep, reap. Now notice this, verse 3, he says, if the clouds are full of rain, they may empty themselves upon the earth. In these Proverbs, Solomon is emphasizing the thought of cause and effect. And the principle alone directs us towards eternity. Think about it, the principle of cause and effect causes us to think towards eternity. Because we know this, that not everything is answered in this life. You see a very wicked man on this earth whose wickedness is not punished on this earth. The law of cause and effect says there's a punishment coming. You see a very blessed man or woman on this earth whose blessedness is not rewarded on this earth. The law of cause and effect leads us to believe that there is a future blessing for them. And that's why he can say there in verse 4, He who observes the wind will not sow. In other words, the farmer who is overly analytical about the wind or about the clouds, he'll never plant his fields and thus he will not reap. The preacher is gently pushing us away from an overly analytical view of life. Stop making it so complicated. Stop torturing yourself about this. It's simpler than you think. Verse 5. Or do you not know what is the way of the wind, or the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child? So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Again, in verse 5, he is again reminding us of the limitations of human knowledge. You don't know the way of the wind. And you don't know how the bones grow in the womb of the mother. Isn't that a marvelous statement? Think about it. All the substance that begins in the womb of the mother, none of it is hard like bone is hard. Yet somehow bones form in the womb of the mother. How does that get there? Now again, I know that there's scientific explanations and all that. But you have to see, just taking a distance from it in a very simple way, looking and you go, wow, how does that happen? It reminds us, verse 5, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the same way that we do not know the hidden things, we also do not know the works of God in a complete or comprehensive way. The preacher is bringing us to a place of humility and submission to God and his works that again push us to a place that is away from that firmly entrenched under the sun premise. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed and in the evening do not withhold your hand for you do not which will prosper either this or that whether alike both will be good. In other words, using agricultural images, the preacher tells us to do the work of all kinds. Do your morning work, do your evening work. Why? Because you don't know which will prosper. Again, he pushes us towards an appropriately humble loss of self-confidence. We should give ourselves to all kinds of work because you don't know what will succeed. We know less of the future than we think we do. And this shakes us out of our confidence saying, Oh, yeah, I know how it works. I was born in this world. I'm going to die in this world, and that's all there is. Oh, is it? Is there not more? You should not be so confident about your knowledge of the future. Verse 7, he kind of gives a final flirtation with the under the sun premise. Look at it here in verse 7 a. 8. It's really interesting. It says, truly, the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun, But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Solomon is kind of going back and forth towards wisdom and foolishness. You see, after repeatedly arguing from the premise expressed by the phrase, under the sun, the preacher now gives it a last glance. He's recognizing this thought before coming to his conclusions in chapter 12. That's why he says in verse eight, yet let him remember the days of darkness. The sun gives light, but the under the sun premise for both the preacher and for us will lead to days of darkness. And those days will be many and it will show us that there is nothing vanity, but vanity, I should say, on this earth. Ready for the last chapter? Verse one. Excuse me, uh, excuse me thematically we move to the last chapter at verse 9. If I were making the chapter divisions, I would start Ecclesiastes chapter 12 at verse 9 of chapter 11. So take a look at it with me now. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of the sun, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart, and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Now notice this, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. You see, perhaps this argued that Solomon is now looking back from a position of old age to the days of his youth before and under-the-sun premise began to take a toll on his life. Now friends, there's one of the great challenges of the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to connect the life of Solomon with the book of Ecclesiastes. When did he write it and under what circumstances did he write it? It is possible that he wrote this book as a jaded old man finding his way back to wisdom and here he He's remembering the wiser days of his youth. Because can we agree on this? In his youth, Solomon Solomon was a very wise man. Matter of fact, he was so wise that the Bible says there was nobody else wiser on the face of the earth. Somewhere along the way, he lost that wisdom. Somewhere along the way, he did not live according to that wisdom. Somewhere along the way, Solomon traded it all in. He traded all in for a thousand wives and concubines. He traded it in for the worship of foreign gods. Friends, it may very well be, I can't say this with certainty, but he wrote Ecclesiastes from the standpoint of a jaded old man who was on his way back to wisdom and now he remembers fondly his wiser, younger days. Now, if we accept the truth of the next few lines of this text, that there is more to life than what we can see, that there is an eternity and an eternal God to reckon with, then friends, the legitimate pleasures of this life can be enjoyed in the best sense. When Solomon says things like this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, with an under-the-sun premise, that's foolishness, It just says, party it up now because when you're dead, you're dead and there's nothing to answer for in the life beyond. That's foolishness. But let me tell you what wisdom is. Wisdom says, no, there is an eternal God and there is an eternal judgment for me to reckon with. However, I know that because life has ultimate meaning in eternity, I can enjoy these things of this world without trying to find meaning in them. Meaning is found in God. Meaning is found in eternity. Meaning is not found in that gourmet meal that I have in front of me. It's a wonderful pleasure that I can enjoy. I can receive it as a good gift from God. But I'm not searching for the meaning of my life in that legitimate pleasure. You see, verse 9, he says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Here the preacher is coming to the answer of his premise and his book. One may live according to his heart and according to what he may see, but they should not think that their own heart or their own eyes is their judge. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a God in heaven who will bring your life and your works into judgment. I, I don't mean to burst, the, well, no, let me take that back. I do mean to burst somebody's bubble tonight. When you stand before God, he's not going to ask you the question, did you follow your heart? Honestly, doesn't the world today think that that's what you need? That's the key to everything in life? Follow your heart. God's not gonna, you know, have a little heart to heart with it. Did you, my dear one, did you follow your heart? Because that what was really important to me in life. God's gonna wanna know did you honor me? Did you obey me? Did you live your life in light of eternity? That's what God's gonna wanna know. There is a God in heaven who will bring all your life and works into judgment. And this is the antidote and the antithesis to the under the sun premise. Life is not lived only for this life on earth, but also for eternity. And knowing that good will be rewarded in eternity and in some way evil will be punished perfectly by this God who will bring us into judgment. Literally in verse 9 when he says, know that for all these God will bring you into judgment literally in the ancient Hebrew it's not that he will bring you into judgment literally it's that he'll bring you into the judgment it's speaking of the judgment verse 10 therefore remove sorrow from your heart i love that eternity's real life matters Everything we do in this world is full of meaning. So get that sorrow out of your heart. God has given you a bigger life to live than you ever imagined. You see, the apostle Paul knew that this eternal perspective could banish sorrow from the heart. That's why he later wrote in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, you're gonna be rewarded, so be encouraged. And without the premise of eternity, without the understanding of the eternal God, life is vain and meaningless. That's why Paul understood this. He later wrote, if in this life we only have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if this life is all there is, we're losers. But Paul says, no, we're not. But instead, living life and light of eternity, look at verse 10. And put away evil from your flesh. Living light in eternity and the eternal God is an incentive to live a holy, godly life in our days on earth. We know that our good will be rewarded and blessed and not only in this life, but in the life to come. And then he says in verse 10, for childhood and youth are vanity. Oh, my friends. An eternal perspective puts childhood and youth into perspective. It doesn't exalt it. And it says childhood and youth are vanity. It's an under the sun perspective that says, oh, I need to keep myself young my entire life. I need to be young, young, young. Young is the ideal thing. Young, young, young. You know why? Because it's the under the sun perspective that says this life is all there is and you better stay young as long as you can. True godly wisdom says I'm okay with getting older. It brings me one step closer to eternity and I have more wisdom than ever to live this life before God. That's what true wisdom says. Verse one of chapter 12. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, but before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Now again, notice, he says, Remember your creator. The idea of a creator is important. And it's the first mention of this concept in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's as if the preacher refused to think about the eternal God in the future, but he also wanted to put the creator God in the past out of his mind. Because for the man on the under the sun perspective, now is all that matters. But he says, no, think about eternity in the future and think about your creator in the past. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Because you, you youth, you young people, you are the ones most likely to discount the reality of eternity and the eternal God. When you're young, you think, man, life is forever, isn't it? Well, you put on a few years and you come back to me and we'll have that discussion. No, you realize life is short and you need to prepare for the world beyond when you get a little bit older but now in this time we should see realize even in the days of our youth we should consider this why look at there in verse one before the difficult days and the years draw near when you say i have no pleasure in them the preacher advised young people to remember god and eternity before they suffer greatly by subjecting themselves to an under the sun premise of life Listen, I got to say that just through the goodness and the mercy of God, these were things that, at least in a small way, my wife Ingalil and I understood early in our life. And I'm very happy to tell this. I look for an opportunity, Ingalil as well, to talk to young people whenever he can. And one of the things I love to tell him is this, is that we gave the young years of our life to serving God, and we've never regretted it. When I think about young people, sometimes they say, well, you know what, look, man, I'll, you know, my youth, those are years for having fun, for sowing the wild oats. You know, maybe when I'm really old, you know, like 30, then I'll start getting serious about the Lord. <laughs> I, I just plead with you, young person, even if you're in your teens, I just plead with you, don't be a fool. Give the young years of your life to serving Jesus Christ in whatever way he calls you to. I mean, God has a different calling on everybody's life. Your calling is not my calling, and my calling is not yours. But never would a God calls you to serve him with your life. Give the young years of your life to serving him, and you will not regret it. Why? Because age is coming on. I want you to look at verses two through five. This is a poetic description of advancing age. I'm not going to go into it in great detail, But just remember this. Think of this as a poetic description of advancing age. Ready for this? Verse 2. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim, When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low. When one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are bought low. They are afraid of height and terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Did you catch that? In other words, The arms and the hands that keep the body now begin to tremble. The keepers of the house tremble. The legs and the knees begin to sag. The strong men bow down. The teeth are lost and chewing is more difficult. The grinders cease because they are few. The eyes are dimmed. The windows grow dim. The ears become weaker and weaker. The sound of grinding is low. Sleep becomes difficult and one is easily awakened. One rises up at the sound of a bird. Singing and music are less appreciated. One becomes more fearful in life. The hair becomes white. That's what he means by the almond tree blossoms. And the once active becomes weak, and the passions and desires of life weaken and wane. Why? Verse 5. For a man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about in the streets. You see, at the end of man's advancing age is his eternal home, not the unknown grave and darkness. The preacher has now set man's advancing age in connection with eternity not in connection with vanity. Verse 6, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Solomon pleads with the reader, remember God before your life is over. Your life is like a fragile pitcher made out of earthenware and when it falls and crashes, it shatters and you can never put it back together again. No, when you pass from this life to the next, it can happen in a moment, so prepare for it now. Remember your creator, remember your God now. And then in verse eight, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. You know what he's doing here? He's returning to his starting point. He's quoting the second verse of the book. "You see, having examined the meaningless of life, the meaninglessness, I should say, of life, with an under-the-sun perspective, now one must say that life is not only meaningless, but it's the ultimate of meaninglessness, if there is no eternity. With an under-the-sun premise, everything is vain. Nothing has meaning. Friends, I just want you to reflect on the fact that we have in our world, we have so many people for whom life has no meaning. They need the message of God's word. They need the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. They need to see that life lived in light of eternity and the eternal God has meaning. One man who reflected deeply on the meaning of life and on the price of a life lived without meaning was a Holocaust survival named Viktor Frankl. His book, Man's Search for Meaning, relates some of his experiences and his um, uh, understanding of life. He wrote this, quote, This striving to find a meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. He went on to write, I turn to the detrimental influence of that feeling of which so many patients complain today. Namely, the feeling of the total and ultimately meaninglessness of their lives. They lack the awareness of meaning, of worth living for. They are haunted by the experience of their inner emptiness, a void within themselves. This existential vacuum manifests itself mainly in a state of boredom. Do you know why there are so many people bored with life? Because they are so out of touch with the fact that a life lived in eternity is full of meaning. When you connect yourself with the eternal God and the concept of eternal reward, then you realize everything you do right now matters. Everything. What you do right now The fact that you're sitting here listening to the Word of God, and I hope thinking about it, at least offering the Holy Spirit the opportunity to speak to your heart, this means something for eternity. You will be rewarded in eternity for this. It matters. But for the person who shuts all of that off, no wonder they're bored. They're bored because nothing has meaning, nothing matters. Viktor Frankl was not a Christian. And he did not believe that there was any one meaning to life. He thought that each man had his own meaning and it could even change from moment to moment. Friends, Viktor Frankl, he didn't have the answers, but he knew how to ask the questions. And to point us to the fact that we need, we need to live lives full of meaning. Verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written in upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. And all the students before finals say, amen." You see, the preacher, that is Solomon, he says, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people. The preacher's search for wisdom and knowledge didn't leave him less wise. He was still a teacher of the people and a writer of Proverbs. But he says, the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails. True wisdom has an effectiveness and an impact. And that's why he says in verse 12, be admonished by these. But then he throws in at the end of verse 12, the the verse we commented upon. Of the making of books there is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Don't believe everything you read for all does not come from one shepherd. That's the advice there. The conclusion, verses 13 and 14. Are you ready for this? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's All for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Friends, much of the book of Ecclesiastes is written under a false premise. But Solomon examines the false present premise and he turns it around and he examines it from every side. He speaks in the voice of that false premise. But make no mistake about it, here, especially in the closing verses of the book, he comes back to true wisdom. And what does he say with the true wisdom? Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, verse 13, Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. Solomon came to the conclusion that it was worth it to obey God and that his obedience both pleased God and it fulfilled man's destiny. Verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Friends, that is impossible to say with an under-the-sun premise. Yet it is the root reason why it is good to fear God and keep his, account, uh, keep his commandments because there is and will be an eternal accounting for everything we do. Now, this is how the book ends. I like what Derek Kidner said about this. He said, quote, This is how the book will end. On this rock we can be destroyed but it is a rock and not quicksand. There is the chance to build. Let me wrap it up with, I think, is a remarkable story. I hope it's remarkable to you. In the 1930s, there was an Australian alcoholic. His name was Arthur Stace. He was converted and he heard an inspiring sermon on the subject of eternity. The preacher said, the one Arthur Stace heard, I wish I could shout eternity through all the streets of Sydney. Stace was so moved that as he left the church, he felt an immediate urge to write the word eternity. He had a piece of chalk in his pocket, and he bent down and wrote on the pavement. Now, this is what you got to understand. Stace was hardly literate, and he could barely write his own name legibly. But when he wrote the word eternity, he did it in the most beautiful, fluid, copperplate script. It looked like an engraver had done it. And so you know what he did? He spent the rest of his life, the next 35 years or so, walking around every day starting at 5.30 in the morning, praying for an hour or so and then he would walk around Sydney, Australia wherever he felt God led him and he would write eternity all over the city. Matter of fact, this is such an iconic thing in Australian culture that when they had the Olympics and the closing ceremonies on that great Sydney Bridge they put the word eternity just the way that Arthur Stace used to write it because it was such an iconic thing. Now friends, that was a man who had some divine wisdom. That was a man who understood something. That living life in light of eternity is true wisdom. I know that it feels like to you and I that this life is forever. I I imagine um, the young mother with a couple of kids and diapers and feeding schedules... And trying to coordinate nap times and the terrible twos and all the rest. of man, we sure lived through it in our family, all of that. You know, it, try to tell her this life is short. Life seems like an eternity right now. And I understand that. Day passes into day, year into year, and we feel like this life is a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. In fact of the matter, this life is very short, and we need to be in constant preparation for eternity because it's coming. And true wisdom is to live life in light of eternity. Father, we pray that you would help us to do that. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the one greater than Solomon with more wisdom than Solomon who came down from heaven to give us divine wisdom and to point us to an eternity spent with him. So Lord, would you please confirm to our lives, Lord, we don't want to end up like Solomon, who it's questionable, Lord, whether or not he even followed his own wisdom on this point. But Lord, we want to live and move and have our being in you who is eternal and with a sharp mind looking towards eternity. Help us to do it, Lord and to thereby glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.